Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we hear how to teach machines ethics. An AI system needs to be guided by what we call ethical goal functions. And these are a mathematical description of how we expect automated vehicles to behave. And when I say we, I mean society, I mean the public. Professor Nick Reed has written a report for the Rhys Jeffries Road Fund on what driverless vehicles should do and whether they should ever break the rules of the road. You'll hear the answers on Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. So Nick Reed's come today with details of a story we ran on Monday on Highways News, but before him, here's Adrian with some other stories on our site. Liverpool Mayor Steve Rotherham has announced that nearly four million will be dedicated to fixing potholes and repairing highways across the Liverpool City region. The 3.7 million has been secured by Mayor Rotherham and the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority to upgrade and repair key parts of the highway network, which could also include bus lanes, cycleways, footpaths and street lighting. Set to be agreed at next week's Combined Authority meeting, the funding will help deliver road repair and resurfacing projects across all six boroughs of the city region. And local authorities should think about considering scrapping low-traffic neighbourhoods where they have become unpopular, says Transport Secretary Mark Harper. Speaking to the Telegraph newspaper, Mr Harper said a large number of LTNs were introduced during the pandemic due to a lack of consultation, and he said now was the time for local authorities to reflect on them. Mr Harper said he had brought funding for projects which ban cars to an end, as they should not be about making it difficult for motorists. Where LTNs are not popular and are pitted cyclists against motorists, the Transport Secretary has suggested council look at the schemes again. He told the Daily Telegraph for local authorities who have got schemes that weren't popular, were very controversial and aren't very well supported, then it would probably be wise for them to look at them again. And the cost to clear maintenance backlog to bring Norfolk's road up to stand at the soars to £69 million, as inflation pushed the cost up in the space of just a year. The council has warned that without extra government investment, if inflation keeps rising, then it will become even harder for them to keep the county's roads in a decent state. That could hamper the council's ability to fix potholes or to carry out bigger road improvements. At a meeting next week, officers will tell councillors that the maintenance backlog has ridden from 57.4 million to 68.6 million in just under a year. Don't forget, we're the only place you need to go for everything you need to know. We are Highways News. Find us online, on LinkedIn, on Twitter and into your inbox every lunchtime if you sign up at highways-news.com. Swarco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer, quicker, more convenient and environmentally sound. From software-as-a-service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too, find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. Nick Reed is without doubt one of the country's leading experts in driverless technology and thanks to funding by the Reese Jeffries Road Fund has published research into how the public feels driverless vehicles should be programmed to make the right ethical decisions while driving on our roads. Reed Mobility worked with DG Cities, TRL, April 6 and Humanising Autonomy and looked at the implications for the development of self-driving vehicles and how this can deliver on William Rees Jeffrey's vision for the future of our roads. So let's find out what he found out. So the project is 
called self-driving but guided by people. That was the the concept of the project. And it started from the work that I was doing for the European Commission in creating recommendations on the ethics of connected and automated vehicles. One of the recommendations we came up with was around how automated vehicles should behave in relation to the rules of the road. Should they always follow the rules of the road or should they be allowed to break them? What are the circumstances when you might want them to break the rules of the road? For example, crossing a double white line to avoid uh, a pedestrian who'd stepped into the road. What uh, the experts deliberated on was it won't be possible to train an AI system in all of the infinite variety of conditions that cars will experience in everyday driving. And even if you could go to your AI system controlling a self-driving vehicle, all of the wide variety of things it might encounter, it wouldn't understand, it wouldn't develop the ethical underpinnings of the behaviours that it observes. So in a, a paper that we published subsequent to the recommendations for the European Commission, we said that an AI system needs to be guided by what we called ethical goal functions. And these are a mathematical description of how we expect automated vehicles to behave. And when I say we, I mean society, I mean the public, overseen by a regulatory authority, someone like the DFT in the UK or equivalent bodies overseas. But in the paper, we didn't talk about how we would define that ethical goal function, how we would capture how people expect automated vehicles to behave. So this project, funded by the Rhys Jeffries Road Fund, was about engaging with the public through a series of workshops and a large-scale survey to try to capture their priorities in terms of the behaviour of automated vehicles, how they should behave in an ethical manner. And that's what we did over the course of the project, working with DG Cities, working with Transport Research Laboratory and at their Smart Mobility Living Lab, and with humanizing autonomy in April 6 as well. Yeah, we've come up with some pretty interesting results. Let's get to the results, but I just want to check what sort of scenarios, because it's one of those things that regularly comes up in reports about self-driving cars. I remember, I can't remember if it was a Grand Tour or a Top Gear, where Jeremy Clarkson announced a driverless car could kill you because it might choose to actually crash you rather than crash into a bus queue for example and so you know it was this big the driverless car will kill you type thing and it's one of those regular questions as to does it run over one school child or three elderly people and those sort of hypothetical scenarios is that what sort of thing you were looking at or were you looking at slightly less sort of sensationalist ideas than that I'll be honest, Paul, it was both. We were interested in some of those kind of dilemma situations, but also kind of the broader implications of the deployment of automated vehicles. What we found, thinking about that scenario you described particularly, is that people did not want self-driving vehicles to protect the occupants more than other road users. Uh, And I, I should clarify as well, we were talking about a self-driving bus service. So the types of shuttle bus that we've seen trialed in a number of projects around the world. 
And the participants in our survey and workshop were quite clear that other road users have not necessarily chosen to be exposed to the risk that these vehicles are uh, presenting to the world. Therefore, they should not be at an increased risk compared to the occupants of those vehicles who have chosen to board them. So, yeah, that was quite an interesting result that there was definitely a sense that we should preserve the lives of other road users at least as much as we do for those occupants of the self-driving vehicles. And when you were looking at the premise of having a self-driving bus in this case, and I'm imagining the kind of easy mile type size pod that we'll see at different congresses and things like that, rather than the the full-size bus that's being trialled across uh, Cav 4th at the moment. Was the, you know, obviously the premise of self-driving vehicles as much as you know solving the driver crisis and and giving more ability to provide shared transport in a wider number of scenarios is safety. So were you starting off by the fact that a properly programmed driverless vehicle with uh, the right sensors on it, etc., is less likely to crash anyway because it doesn't lose concentration, it's not having a bad day, and it doesn't have the reaction time that humans have. So we explored that, really. I mean, it wasn't something we necessarily started with. And the extent to which the bus takes risks, particularly in an urban environment, we're talking about a self-driving bus that would operate in a busy city. We were interested in, in people's views about should it pull out at junctions into busy traffic in the way that human drivers do, kind of nudging out into small gaps that you wouldn't take in, in a quieter situation. And would passengers on that bus be happy to miss their dinner appointment, their theatre appointment, because the bus was being too cautious. And so what is that kind of risk acceptance that people would be willing to tolerate in order for the bus to, to meet its scheduled arrival time? And as you can imagine, people did not want developers of self-driving vehicles to take any shortcuts in terms of risk, in terms of saving time, but also in terms of cost as well. You shouldn't seek to accelerate deployment simply by uh, because you think you can save money. So you've been working on this technology for a decade or more now, and we've talked many times about uh, what you've learned and you've been putting people in simulators and other tests to get public reaction. What new things did you learn this time and what sort of attitudes are we getting now? Are people getting more open to the idea of self-driving vehicles or are we still at the position where there's a lot of PR and persuasion to be done? Still a lot of persuasion to be done, I think. But the important thing I think to note on that is that people are very open to that persuasion. Once they see that the vehicles are being designed to operate safely, once they see that they provide a useful service, they are very open to the technology and, and can see the benefits. So what we saw over the course of the workshops is people's attitudes went from fairly sceptical to more positive. That scepticism is understandable. It's a new technology operating in a safety-critical environment with potential risk to members of the public. 
So it is understandable that there is some hesitance, but when you show people the lengths that are being gone to, to to prove the safety and the benefits that can be achieved, I think they're very open to the technology. But importantly, I think the requirement is there for us to engage with the public, to educate and engage on the deployment of the technology, but also to understand what are their um, desires, their preferences, their expectations about how this technology should operate and make sure that is encompassed in the way that the system is designed. Okay, I've got so many more questions, Nick, but let's actually go through. I realise that we haven't properly really yet touched on what the recommendations are and what the, you know, a wider look at we've kind of dipped into bits of some of the feedback from uh, the participants, but then what you've learned from that. So summarise the reporters to what the recommendations are. I think the most important finding to come out of the, the report is the emphasis on trust. People need to be able to trust how this technology will operate. And that comes in a variety of different forms. So it has to provide a safe environment for the, the users of the bus. It has to provide safety for other road users. And there has to be a, a legal framework to make sure that the vehicle is operating in accordance with the requirements of a regulator, but also that if things go wrong, we can learn from incidents that do occur and make sure they don't happen again. People were, interestingly, quite open to the fact that incidents will will still happen, crashes will st still take place, but they wanted to know that we would definitely learn from each mistake and um, take every step to make sure they didn't happen in future. One thing I would say is that for some topics, there was quite a broad range of opinions across the public. It was quite hard to find unanimity on some points. So it won't be easy for developers to produce vehicles that please all the people all of the time. We can do our best and we will learn over time. And that's part of this idea of the ethical goal function is it's not a static entity. As we learn about what people are willing to accept and how people want the vehicles to behave, we can adjust criteria on this ethical goal function and improve the way the vehicles operate. Professor Nick Reed talking the ethics of driverless cars and back with him in a moment after we've heard the latest from our partners. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. Let's start with the news from Adept which is part of the Blueprint Coalition, an influential group of local government, environmental and research organisations. The coalition recently published a manifesto asks document calling on every political party to commit to empowering local authorities to tackle climate change. An open webinar is also planned where next for climate action it's called and it discusses the critical role of local government and the national policies that could help accelerate local climate action. This cross-party, cross-sector discussion will be chaired by Louise Marix-Evans, author of the Climate Change Committee's 2022 report on local government's role in net zero delivery. And you can look up Blueprint Coalition webinar on adeptnet.org.uk to find out more. 
Delegates at the popular JCT Traffic Signals Symposium in September will hear updates on an important project aimed at getting more value from the UK's network of traffic signal controllers. The manager of the Transport Technology Forum, Darren Capes, will give a speech outlining the work of the Digital Controller Interface Specification at the opening of the two-day event on the 14th of September in Nottingham, while the Forum's Connected Vehicle Working Group Chair, Andy Graham of White Willow Consulting, will give more details later in the day. You can find out at jctsymposium.co.uk. Last week's podcast, if you remember, came from the Elkrig Innovation Festival and following up on her chat with me at the event, the new chief executive of the local council roads innovation group, Paula Clayton-Smith, has described the festival as a wonderful example of collaboration between public and private sector. More than 600 people attended the two-day event, which took place at the New York showground, including more than 200 local authority delegates from 84 authorities. An ITS UK is hosting a webinar to help you make the most of your membership. It takes place on the 25th of July and doesn't matter if you're new to ITS UK or a well-established member, the ITS UK team will take you through the ways you can get maximum value from your membership with some useful hints and tips on how to navigate the sometimes complex intelligent transport sector. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now let's go back to my chat with Nick Reed. A lot of the self-driving buses that we have now the pods operate in very restricted environments and often will do a specific route so in effect they could be on rails they're just not it's just rubber tires on the road but they're doing the same route backwards and forwards and often not in mixed traffic conditions how much more difficult is it introducing these vehicles into mixed traffic conditions? And did you in any way discuss with the participants in the study their attitude to potentially changing the infrastructure in a city to actually make it easier for these vehicles to operate potentially by blocking off other traffic or pedestrians from the routes that they're taking? On the complexity point, it is much harder to operate vehicles in more open environments, but it is happening. We see the likes of Waymo and Cruise in the US delivering commercial driverless services. Similarly, the likes of Oxa and Wave and Fusion Processing in the UK are, are moving to more sophisticated environments for their self-driving vehicles. But yeah, we need a lot more sophistication in the sensors and the software to be able to operate in those unrestrained conditions. In terms of people's acceptance or or desire for infrastructure change to support self-driving vehicles, I don't think it was there. We did look at that specifically. We We looked at whether people would prioritize changes to infrastructure over if you were able to get a better transport service, would you accept changes to infrastructure? There wasn't really a strong um, desire for that to happen. So I think people aren't really keen to see land dedicated to these types of vehicle. They want to see them using the regular roads. You mentioned Oxa, Wave, Waymo, Cruise, the more driverless cars rather than mass or semi-mass transit, you know, shared vehicles. Are the results that you got from this survey 
able to be used to assist the developers of the smaller, in effect, private driverless vehicles and help in the development of those or is it much more specific towards the the pods the public transport side of things i think the specific results we got are applicable to the use case we studied which was this self-driving bus in an urban environment but i think what's more broadly applicable is the process that we applied so this ability to engage with the public and learn from their desires, expectations about the behavior of self-driving vehicles, and then use that in the way they're developed and regulated, actually. So it gives guidance to the developers in how their technology should behave, but also to the regulators in making sure in the framework they introduce, that reflects how society expects self-driving vehicles to deliver. You can't open a paper these days or a magazine or turn on the telly without a mention of AI, without talking about chat GPT. Is that having an effect on the reaction of potential passengers of these vehicles? And are they seeing AI as a good thing or some scary thing that's going to end civilization? As with many of these things, it's a complete mixture. But in some of the, the work I've been doing around AI, it's interesting to see it can give very convincing answers to questions unless you actually know the subject when you can start to spot the holes in the text that it produces. And I think there's a parallel here with self-driving vehicles because the way they behave out on the roads might look very convincing, but they might be behaving in strange ways in the way in what their programming is, is doing. So I think we need to have that confidence in how self-driving vehicles perceive the world and how they are deciding how to drive. And that's related to some of the work I've been doing for BSI, British Standards Institution, about being able to reach in to vehicles and get a standardized readout of what the vehicles are seeing and doing to give us that confidence that they are behaving safely. This is, this is a practical application of AI, and we need to have transparency that it is working safely to make sure both passengers and other road users are safe. Now, you are my go-to person for anything about driverless vehicles. If I want to get some background to something or I want a quote or whatever else as a journalist, uh, the first person to go to is Nick Reed. So I just want to ask you, because you know, you've been involved in this from the beginning. You, I will remind you, because I love reminding you, your interview with Eamon Holmes on Sky News when you stood with that initial gateway pod outside the O2, goodness, nigh on a decade ago. How, compared to the Nick that stood by that pod, talking on the telly one breakfast time all those years ago to now, how has the industry actually developed and timescales wise where where do you think we we are compared to where you thought we would be by now and where will we be in 5 10 20 years time i'm glad i'm not talking to Eamon holmes <laughs> that interview was february 2015 it was at the launch of the gateway project along with the other the projects the first round of of projects that dft funded to demonstrate self-driving vehicles and at the time, I think people were 
fairly confident and excited about the prospect of there being widespread adoption of self-driving vehicles by, you know, by now, by mid-2020s, that, that we would do some trials, we'd figure out the laws, we'd figure out the technology, and off we would go and they would be operating out in the wild. Clearly, that, that hasn't happened. And I think my attitude now is one of healthy scepticism about what the technology will deliver, when it will deliver, and also just a degree of caution over the extent to which societal desires, societal expectations for this technology are genuinely being accounted for in uh, the way the technology is being developed and deployed, the use cases for which the technology is being put. So, you know, I'm a psychologist, human factors person by background. I'm always thinking about the implications for people. The benefits this technology could bring are transformational in terms of safety and, and accessibility of transport, but only if the technology is introduced in the right way. And so that's what my work is about now, is making sure it's delivered safely and effectively and genuinely reflects what society needs. I could go in two uh, ways now, Nick. So I'm going to go one way, then I'm going to come back to one other question. The technology, clearly, lots of it works. Putting it all together and delivering a vehicle that will pick me up from outside my house in a village in North Essex and drive over to, to visit you is still a long way away. But the... ADAS systems that will help me drive a vehicle safer and less likely to make a mistake that will be catastrophic is is there and now. So should we be doing more to do it incrementally by encouraging the car manufacturers to actually put more of the technology that we're learning for the ultimate self-driving solution into here and now solutions on more and more vehicles? Absolutely. And that process is happening, I think. You know, the pace of development of the technology has been boosted by the self-driving vehicle initiatives. And it means that it's now becoming more cost effective for manufacturers to put you know, advanced sensing technologies, advanced sensors onto consumer vehicles. And again, another note of caution, however, is that we need to understand the effects that these technologies have on the way people behave. So we wouldn't want people to become less attentive behind the wheel because they think that the vehicle is always going to get them out of trouble if they need to be paying attention and, and ready to act at the, at, a, at the right moment. So, yeah, absolutely love to see this technology introduced and, and, and improve safety on the roads. has to be done in the right way. It has to deliver the benefits that it promises. And finally... I think what's come out to me loud and clear through liaising with hundreds into you know thousands of of potential users and road users and some of them are embracing it some of them are skeptical but something we're phenomenally bad at doing in our industry is educating and explaining and taking people along with you and that has just screamed at me that after I won't mention the specific example of where something that was a really good idea was so badly delivered to the public that it's ended now we can't afford not to take the public with us on this journey otherwise it will never happen absolutely Paul yeah the the need is there. Um, we've seen initiatives like the PAVE campaign 
in the US and now in Europe as well as, as PAVE Europe to encourage the debate, to provoke the debate with the public, with industry about the, pot the potential benefits of self-driving vehicles, but also some of the risks, some of the implications of how the technology will develop to educate, to inform and to, to, to show the, the benefits that, uh, that are there. And we could certainly do with something similar in the UK to make sure we stay at the cutting edge and to make sure that the public receive this technology for the benefits it can bring to society. And Nick's in San Francisco checking out driverless cars there at the moment and hopefully we'll get some feedback from him on those here on Highways News. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Almost time to go, but first let's go back to Adrian for... Adrian's accolade. And my accolade this week goes to the Road Emulsions Association and the Road Surface Treatments Association. They have joined forces to launch a new campaign aimed at promoting the benefits of surface dressing as part of a proactive highways maintenance strategy. Surface dressing is one of the most carbon-efficient surface treatments according to new RCA guidance. Surface dressing uses up to 75% less bitumen and up to 80% less aggregate per square metre, compared to thin surf asphalt courses. It's a worthy campaign at the moment as we continue to see more potholes on the roads and anything that can be done now to reduce them happening in the future is obviously a good thing. Worthy winners of my accolade this week. And that will do it for this Highways Voices. Thanks as always for joining us and we'll chat again next week. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 